You can have the best ideas in the world, but if you don't know how to find the person who will tell you what the story means, they're, they're meaningless. Oh, hi, Trish. Yeah, um, listen, I think we're going to need a correspondent this evening. We used to call it phone bashing, right? Just hours of calling people up and trying to find the right person to tell that story. Hello and welcome to NewsApp from the BBC World Service. We're coming to you live from London. Persistence is really key. Grip onto the person, don't let them go, persuade them, charm them and do what you can to get them on there. I'm Mike Innes. I've been a radio journalist for 15 years and for the last six of those I've been an output editor on NewsHour on the BBC World Service. And today I'm going to give you a masterclass on finding the story and turning it into radio. Hello and welcome to the masterclass. I'm Louisa Lim and I teach journalism at the University of Melbourne. Every week we're going to have a master of audio journalism talking through one aspect of the craft. This week we're talking about how to find the story and turn it into radio. And we're talking with Mike Inners, an output editor of NewsHour on the BBC World Service. It's a daily news show and every day Mike has to find ways of filling it with breaking news stories. So Mike, I mean, in your job, you really drive the bus, don't you? You're in charge of content of the show on a daily basis and you have to find news stories to fill the show. I mean, talk us through how you do that. Yes, the output editor is in charge of the programme and that begins the moment you walk into the office and you read in, you see what's happening in the world. You then host your editorial meeting, which involves, in NewsHour's case, four producers. We talk about what the main stories of the day are. We talk about what the off-agenda stories of the day are, science, art, sport. And from that, we pull together a running order in which will hopefully give our listeners a sense of the moment. The crucial thing is finding a good lead. You want people to tune in and think they're hearing something important and clear analysis and explanation of what's happening there. So from that editorial meeting, we will pick the ideas, we'll decide how to structure a running order, and we will then set off and hunt down the interviews that are going to make the programme. So we've got about five hours to do that before we go on air, and we need to adapt if stories fall away or new stories break. And when we go on air, we continue to do that. We adjust, we update, and we replace stories if necessary. And then we come off air and we ask ourselves, did we do it right and what should we be doing next time? So I remember when I worked at the BBC World Service and my job was, I mean, we used to call it phone bashing, right? Just hours of calling people up and trying to find the right person to tell that story. Oh, hi, Intake. Uh, it's Laurence. I'm on Late News Hour. Who's looking after radio, please? Oh, hi, Trish. Yeah. Um, hi there. This listen, is Jack from BBC NewsHour. Can you hear me okay? I mean, how many people do you think your producers call just to get that one interview? It can vary. The first call sometimes goes straight through. If you're calling up an academic, you've got the number in the system in our contacts already. They pick up, they say, yep, yeah, I'm free, we'll do it. That's sort of one end of the spectrum. In other cases, if you're phoning difficult parts of Africa and you find your contacts just aren't up to it, the story hasn't been in the news recently, you've often got to start from scratch because numbers change, people in power change, and you have to find a way from your desk in London to the desk of the president of Zimbabwe, for example. You really have to use your initiative. It's a bit like a maze where you, you take a wrong turning, you hit a dead wall, your number doesn't work, but then you find another opening, and you speak to that person. They may not be the right person, 
but they might be able to suggest someone else who can help you. So it can be dozens of calls in a day, but it can be one as well. So persistence is really key. Absolutely. Tenacity <laughs> is so important. And it, I can't express this enough. You can have the best ideas in the world, but if you don't know how to find the person who will tell you what the story means, they're meaningless. You've got to take rejection because people sometimes don't want to talk to the media. You can set your heart on one person. And if they don't want to speak to you, you've got to think, what's plan B? Plan B is key in this because plan A, particularly in the, the short run up we have for news, often doesn't happen. Grip onto the person, don't let them go, persuade them, charm them, and do what you can to get them on there. And often people will do it because they want their story to be heard. They want their perspective to be heard. I often say to my students, it's not plan B, it's plan sort of C, D, E, G, D, D is fine. D is fine. By the time you get to air, sometimes E or F is, is also good. <laughs> so how much of a role does Twitter play now in finding the right interviewee? Increasingly. And I sit there with Twitter on my second screen and I watch the stories come in because traditionally on NewsHour, we have relied on our correspondents in the field. We've relied on the news agencies, so Reuters, AFP, Associated Press. And they are still a very good, reliable source of news. And we have to consider what the source is as well, because established agencies we give more weight to than what we might see on Twitter. So that's not to say we should ignore it, but we should treat with caution if we do see something on Twitter that's interesting. So I look at what's coming in. We look at who's talking to whom about the story we're chasing. We try and contact those people directly and ultimately have a conversation with someone we think is promising because you need to check out the story. You need to get more detail on what's happening before you commit to, to what you're going to do. But I can't express enough how much Twitter has changed what we do. It gives us access to people that we would have never had before uh, on the radio. So maybe we should talk through an example. We have audio from a show that you recorded just the other day on a, on a very big news day. It was the day that Zimbabwe's president, Robert Mugabe, was expected to step down. But uh, he didn't step down. I'm James Menendez. And today, Robert Mugabe has been dismissed as leader of Zimbabwe's ruling ZANU-PF party. He then gave a speech in which he was expected to resign but didn't. So what happens now? We'll hear from our correspondent in Zimbabwe, a member of ZANU-PF, the man who's drafting what now seems to be Mr Mugabe's inevitable impeachment and the US State Department's senior voice on African affairs. And in the past uh, 15 minutes, we've got through to the leader of the War Veterans Associations, for so long Mr Mugabe's ally. Well, this is his message to him now. We are seeing... 37 years, you have had your time. You are tossed now politically. Please give the country a chance. Let it move to the next page. If you can't, find the country will find a way to dispense with you. And we will sure find a way to dispense with him. So, Mike, I mean, that was an amazing lineup of heavy hitters. How did you find all those people in just like four or five hours? It was actually even less than that. So this was a Sunday evening and we were sitting waiting for the Mugabe speech. We knew it was coming. We were on air at 9pm and at 7pm Robert Mugabe appeared. And we'd been on Twitter and there were numerous reports from sources close to the talks that he was going to resign. And we sat and watched the speech and he didn't resign and he still didn't resign. And he got to the end of the speech and he didn't resign. So with two hours to air, we were the story was completely different to the one we planned to be doing. 
So I think in that introduction, what I was trying to do was give a sense of the drama of the moment. The fact that we just said in the last 15 minutes, we literally had just got through to the war veterans guy just before we came on air. And you want people to be gripped from the start. So that's what we were setting out to do there. It's not every day that we get such a great cast of players. It helped that it was a Sunday. People are busier on weekdays. It helped that it was a breaking news story because people will often want their views heard at the critical moments when they know people will be listening to the news. So the producer had set up the uh, American State Department person. That was early in the day because we knew we wanted reaction from outside the country to give some international context. The other ones over the previous few days since uh, the army had taken over, we had developed some good ZANU-PF, the governing party contacts, which had been because we'd not covered the story for some time, because lines had been bad and because there were often changes in in position, it took us a good few days to get those contacts. We'd been speaking to some of those already. The war veterans leader hadn't replied to calls. He hadn't responded to WhatsApp messages. He'd read them, so he was clearly getting them. And he obviously thought that the moment had arrived for him to have his say. And in the interview, you can hear his frustration and anger. So... In many ways, you're dependent on the mood of the people you're talking to. That You've got to think about what are they going to get from this interview? And is this the moment where they want their story heard? And sometimes no amount of persuasion will do that. But sometimes with a bit of luck, a bit of timing, and with a bit of that persistence, the interviews come off. My favourite part was that clip from the War Veterans Association leader, Chris Mutsvangwa, a former backer of Robert Mugabe calling him toast. When the interview came up, he was full of these amazing lines. I think we have another clip from the interview where he's equally sort of memorable. Well, it's an outrageous speech, you know. It's the height of lunas from a senior old man. And, and why, given that many people are expecting him to resign, why do you think he didn't? Well, he, he, he obviously works according to his own rule book which doesn't exist anywhere in any civilized you know, uh, political discourse from what I can see. Because, you know, he, he clearly gave, he showed a speech aside, which seems to have been commonly agreed speech with his generals, and he decided to proceed with his own speech. I don't know why he's putting his safety and that of the country to the test. It's totally irresponsible. So I love the way that he said this is the height of rudeness from a senile old man. I mean, did you know he was going to say these things or do you just kind of try and find a newsmaker and hope that they're going to say something truly memorable? We had no idea. We could have called him up and if he'd said yes to the interview, there would have been every chance that he would have you know, spoken in banalities. The phone line could have been awful. You never quite know. We were lucky this was done through WhatsApp, actually, which is... In some countries, Iran, Zimbabwe, which are traditionally difficult countries to reach, suddenly you get these crystal clear lines. And we would, might have had to voice it over, which would have taken the passion out of the interview. So, again, it's just luck in some cases that he wanted to speak. He had these killer sound bites and <laughs> he was prepared to unleash them with the force that he felt Mr. Bagabi deserved. Right. It was um, amazing radio. But another step down from that is just finding someone 
important, who may not be driving the news, but whose comments carry weight. And I think we have another example from NewsHour on the day in 2016 when President Obama announced new executive action on guns. So it was action to tighten background checks and include information about people forbidden from possessing firearms because of mental health reasons. And on that day, the NewsHour host, Tim Franks, talked to the Lieutenant Governor of Texas, Dan Patrick, who's opposed to these new controls. Well, I disagree respectfully, Tim, on this front. If someone wants to do another person harm, there are enough guns in America that they can either steal the guns, or they can buy the guns from someone else who has bought them legally. People with evil intentions will always find a way to get a gun. But shouldn't you make it slightly uh, more difficult for them to? No. The, our Second Amendment is very clear, Tim, and it really goes back to our founding fathers, and Britain is our great ally. But once upon a time, as we know in our history, we were at odds. And our founders, after the Revolutionary War with England, made it very clear that the Second Amendment made clear that you cannot infringe in any way upon a person's right to buy a gun and protect themselves. The Second Amendment is very clear on that issue. So there's no reason, Tim, if you're an American citizen and you're my neighbor and you have a gun, do you have to do a background check on me to get a gun? You shouldn't have to, and nor should I have to get one from you, or if you're a family member. The same token, if you have a collection of guns, a small collection of guns, uh, and you want to go to a flea market or a gun show on a Saturday and sell some of your guns, no different than you would sell anything else, why shouldn't you be able to? So, I mean, that's such an interesting interview. How did you go about making sure that it would be so interesting? How do you do that? Dan Patrick is clearly an important person. He's the second most powerfully elected official in Texas. So we needed to make sure that we were going to hold him to account. So Tim, the presenter, in his brief, would have needed ammunition, facts, data, quotes of theirs or their allies that he can use as leverage against the interviewee. What is also important is the tone. And throughout that interview, Tim was completely respectful. He allowed Mr. Patrick to speak. He presented him with facts. He really gave him a chance to express himself in a way that would allow the listeners to make up their own mind. And there's some very important issues here because if you go in too hard, the interviewee could become defensive. If you go in too hard, the listener can switch off. If you interrupt too much, they might feel that you're not giving the speaker a fair chance. And also, by listening and pausing, you sometimes can extract just a little bit more people don't like silences. So draw them into saying something they might not otherwise have said. Another example that you've given that I think provides another way of getting a story is not talking to somebody important, but talking to somebody who the audience can really connect to. I think you gave us an example of an interview with a South Sudanese schoolgirl. Tell me a bit more about what the context was for this, who this schoolgirl Monica was and how you found her. So I was in South Sudan a couple of years ago, and it's a country that is undercovered across the board in the media. It's had years of fighting. It's not a very safe place to be. There is a danger that because of its horrific past, people maybe switch off a little when they hear about war-toned countries. And there's 
places like that in the news today, Yemen and Syria and even South Sudan, where people tend to hear the same things over and over again. And we did go to refugee camps and there were some horrific stories there. We went to the front line and visited these ghost town and it was very vivid. But we ended up speaking to a lot of humanitarian organisations, to politicians, to army people. And what I wanted was just someone who saw this from a completely fresh perspective. And it, this was actually towards the end of the trip, so I'd had a bit of time to digest what was happening. So I went to interview this girl, and it had come through, I think, the British Department for International Development had put me in contact with a charity who worked with school children, and I turned up, I had no idea who I was going to speak to, if it was going to be a class full of children or one child. And they brought these four girls forward, and this was Monica, and she just stood out for reasons which will become apparent. In South Sudan, there is no high security because I see innocent blood shedding down. And the mistake I see is from the leaders because they are reducing our number down. We are killing people for no good reason. So if you were to meet the president tomorrow, what would you say to him? I'd just like to tell the president a leader should show an example, a leader should be a justice. So what he's doing is not nice and he should follow a right way. Because it is said, a bell is not a bell until you ring and a song is not a song until you sing. So this piece of ours, we say it has been signed, we don't see action. When the peace was signed, the same day we had people being killed. And why do you think people are fighting? Because of tribalism. Others, because of resources. They fight because of resources. And others, they just fight because of hatred. They just hate each other. If you ask the reason, you will not find the reason. How old is Monica? Monica is 15. And as you heard there, she's just incredibly articulate. She's incredibly passionate. And this isn't someone I would have been able to find at my desk in London and phoning people up. You just don't get those voices from the office. You need to be in the field. And she was such a great speaker that all I had to do was was ask her open-ended questions and let her express herself because her turn of phrase was wonderful, her emotion was wonderful, and, and she was outspoken. And to hear a teenage girl in a country that has seen such violence against women, a teenage girl speaking so passionately and openly was just so eye-opening for me. She really is. As you, I think, said to her, she's more articulate than most politicians. But in a way, it feels like a really counterintuitive choice not to find an expert or someone, just to go to an ordinary, ordinary child. In many ways, yes, but it's the voice that sticks in people's ear, that they hear middle-aged men in suits talking and saying the same things. And people tend to disbelieve politicians for the most part. But everyone knows teenage girls, they've got nieces, they've got daughters, or were themselves that age. And I think what she does so powerfully is allow you to put yourself in her position. Here's a, a young girl who is clearly getting an education, but you have to fear for her future. But then she isn't afraid of her future which is, to me, the most counterintuitive thing, that we, perhaps in the West, would assume that children in South Sudan don't really have a chance to speak out. And when you do hear one do that and, and do it so passionately, it's just incredibly refreshing. But in all honesty, as a journalist, you don't stumble across Monica every day. In fact, most days, you don't speak to people who are that passionate and articulate. What do Sadly you do? Not. About- <laughs> it would be great with a contacts file with 15-year-old schoolgirls who could 
you know, <laughs> knock the ball out of the park when it came to interviews on quality lines, but they, it's sadly <laughs> few and far between. So what do you do for those interviews that just aren't that good? They're just a little bit mediocre, just not that interesting. How would you deal with that? I would like to say we don't use them. We have to come up again with plan B. If it's an academic, for example, and this happens often that, no offence to academics, but they're so immersed in their subject and they know so much that they don't quite know how to communicate it to an audience of laymen and laywomen in three and a half minutes. And I think the media is to blame for that in many ways. We want sound bites, we want digestible chunks, and we probably oversimplify it. And that happens in particular when you cover science stories or when you cover politics. So there's a tension there between the media and the speaker because there's often different agendas and you don't always get what you want. So you can pre-record interviews. We often pre-record discussions because if you've got people with competing views, it sometimes takes them five, ten minutes to actually start engaging with each other directly because they're too polite or too afraid to actually do that. So if you think someone isn't a great speaker but might give you something with a bit of time, then we would probably pre-record that because then we can edit it, we can produce it in a form that draws the best elements out of the discussion. Or you just have to look for someone else and you have to be polite and honest with your contributors and say, thank you, but it wasn't quite what we're looking for. Or maybe we can come back to you another day. When you start as a journalist, you always have this idea that the news story is obvious, that it's there, it will emerge, it's just waiting to be told. But I think actually, in many ways, the reverse is true, that as long as you ask the right questions, you can normally often produce some kind of news line. What kind of advice would you give to young journalists to go about finding the story, finding that news line? If you look at news now, we have an hour in the morning to read in on everything that's happening in the world. And it would be extremely arrogant to think that we know what the news line is on any given story. We can go into the meeting and we can discuss what we think is important. But then you maybe have to show a bit of humility and consult colleagues who are experts in the field. If you phone someone up and say, we want to talk about this angle, be prepared to ask them, do you think that's the right angle? Because they're looking at this every day and they are probably listening to how the story's been covered in the media and have opinions about what we are missing. So take guidance is the thing I'd say. Don't go with your first instinct because the first instinct is what you've probably read in your Western newspaper or heard on the programme you're listening to the, the previous night. So there's so much to be learned from taking advice from, from people who know more than you do. And just dig. That's the only way you get to the heart of the story. And there are restrictions when you're phoning from a distance and can't see it up front. So speak to people, speak to lots of people, and don't go with the first person who agrees to do the interview. Have you ever had a show where you... You know, you just simply couldn't find good enough interviewees. <laughs> I mean, it's not a, every day. It's not every yeah. day that Robert Mugabe refuses to resign, is it? Yes, there are definitely quiet news days. Um, I've, I have two recurring anxiety dreams. One is that I'm doing the exam that I haven't revised for. 
And the other is that I'm in a studio and we've got half an hour of airtime to fill and I've got no material. It hasn't happened, touch this rather sort of plasticky desk in front of me, yet. Um, preparation is everything. I always ask my producer to have a plan B. If I'm looking at a running order that has three gaps in it, I'm thinking, what can I run? Maybe from a program that was on air slightly earlier. What other news story is there that would allow me to speak to someone quite easily to fill that hole? Because as uh, Alan Partridge, the uh, British comedy character said, dead air is a crime. And uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm fully with him on that. And uh, it is the bottom line is have that plan B. Know what you're going to go to. And if a producer hasn't got an interviewee within, say, two hours of going on air, I'm thinking, OK, we're not going to do that story. Let's look at something else instead. But the best interviews, as we heard with Monica, often emerge when you're in the field. So it's an unnerving thing to do to go abroad and not have everything set up in advance. But you just have to trust yourself and trust the time that you have there to find people. And you may just end up going into a cafe and gathering a few people together and getting their thoughts. And sometimes the best interviews come out of that sort of scenario. So you can do preparation, but at the same time, you've got to not fall in love with your material as well, which is you think it's brilliant, you've heard it loads of times, you met the person, you were charmed by them. Back in London, they don't have that uh, proximity. So you need to just keep an objective ear across what you're doing and and make sure that you give the interviews the time that they're due, be that two minutes or ten minutes. So to sum up, can you give us two top tips on finding the story and turning it into radio? My first one is simply be curious, be resourceful and be tenacious. You don't need to know everything in the world to be a journalist, but if you've got those skills, they will carry you a very long way. And um, my second one, and this is advice I've not followed myself, <laughs> but develop a specialism and learn a language because if you do that, it will take you places that generalists can't go. You can earn the trust of contributors, of, of people in that field who might be able to one day give you a news story we can call people up every day and they can tell us stuff. But if you develop human relationships with people at the heart of the story or who know a lot about the story, you will be the person that they will turn to when they have something important to say on it. Excellent advice. I believe you have a task for students so they can practice finding the story and turning it into radio. So the task is, and this is a scenario, yesterday there was a coup in Eritrea and all the phone lines went dead across the whole country. How will you find people to cover the story and give you context about what it means? Perfect. And how many interviewees are you expecting them to find? I would like two interviewees. Someone to tell me close up the reportage, what's happening in Eritrea, and someone to explain to me what it means and why we should care. Perfect. Thank you very much, Mike. Pleasure. Lovely to speak to you. The Masterclass is produced and edited by Buffy Gorilla and Ruby Schwartz. It's recorded in the Hallwood Recording Studio by Gavin Neighbour. 
The original concept is by Anders Furs. Our theme tune is by Susie Wilkins. And it's all brought to you by the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Thanks for listening. Thank you.